Hey everyone! In continuation of our celebration of National Honey Month, I am bringing you not one, but two episodes. In our last episode, we met Seza J. Sykes and offered up her book, Pandeme of Bees, plus some treats from the National Honey Board's Honey Saves Hive program as a prize for one lucky participant who was brave enough to share a poem about bees. Our winner is Kristen, who shared this lovely poem. I walk into the yard thinking this might be too hard. The smoke fills the air like campfires of childhood. Then I realize it's all good. The bees whiz in the air, but if you listen carefully, there's order in there. With all the roles they journey through, what a gift they share with you. Kristen, thank you for sharing that with us. Enjoy your prize. Now, on to the show. This is Beekeeper Confidential, a show about the curious lives of bees and their beekeepers. I'm your host, Mandy Shaw. Today's guest is a beekeeper with a very unique journey. Her hands have touched hives from Hawaii to New Zealand, offering hive inspection services and breeding queens. She works for Comvita, one of the world's leading producers of Manuka honey, and she's here to give us the scoop on all things Manuka honey, wellness, queen breeding, and how she continues to feel the precious magic of the human-bee relationship. Please welcome Noelani Waters. Let's talk about life and bees <laughs> yeah. and beekeeping and all all of the things that come with it. You've had quite an interesting journey with bees. Do you want to take us yeah. way back to the beginning? <laughs> sure. Yeah. So I guess the very beginning is that um, I grew up in a garden. So my my parents are both really, really avid gardeners. And uh, I was really encouraged to interact with bugs and uh, just be in amongst the garden. And I always had a really great affinity for earthworms and bugs. And um, so much so that, yeah, I ended up studying agriculture in college. So I have a degree in tropical plant science and agroecology. And my um, certificate is in beekeeping. So I, it's just a little uh, specialty on top of that. I originally took a beekeeping class in college and that's how I first got into bees. And so um, we have that certificate pathway um, at the University of Hawaii in Hilo, which is where I grew up, um, the big island of Hawaii. And so um, I was able to get exposed to bees that way. And so I just got in my first class was immediately, um, you know, enamored. Aww. So enamored. Yeah. And, and then it just was... Um, a continuation from there. So I did an internship with the um, school farm uh, and our bees that we had with the farm and um, ended up then continuing more classes, getting that certificate, getting some of my own hives um, and doing some side-by-side -side learning with uh, top bar and Langstroth colonies. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, I really lucky got um, hired right out of my degree um, with the Depart Hawaii Department of Agriculture um, as an apiary inspector. And that was just a dream come true. I was, you know, on the entry, entry level and I did that for almost four years um, wow. and it was a really small team. How do you think that that accelerated 
your skill set as a beekeeper? Enormously. I think I knew almost nothing (laughs) in in retrospect. I think I knew almost nothing. And I was just really lucky to be given that chance. Um, And I had really great mentors in that role. Um, One of which is um, Danielle Downey, who now runs PAM, um, Project PAM. I heard her speak once and it was like, <laughs> yeah, she's wonderful, so knowledgeable. Um, and so that was a really amazing mentor. And also um, Lauren Russert, who has now, she's completing her PhD at, at um, UC Davis, and wow. she's been studying extensively so she was a great resource for me as well and so both of them with um, then a couple other people here and there um, we were basically a team of four at any time and we ran the um, inspection services and biosecurity for honeybees throughout the state of Hawaii for four years and that's so amazing and like looking at how your all of your careers have evolved from that you know team that you were on together Yes, it was hugely influential. Um, I had never actually done barehanded beekeeping before I started that role. And I kind of actually on my first day was initiated into that. And I've never <laughs> looked back. I absolutely love being barehanded and actually as bare as I can <laughs> um, in, in general, which has been really liberating and exciting to teach people through that lens and show people that bees are gentle and that yeah. they are they're um, incredible creatures that you can kind of learn their way of being and their frequency a bit. What are some tips that you have for people who, like myself, I still suit up quite a bit, but I love the, uh, I don't know, I guess I view barehanded beekeeping as much more uh, romantic of, mm. of a, you know, sometimes of a practice. it's not practical <laughs> yeah sometimes it's not practical but I'd say um start small so you can start with nitrile gloves as an option so those are really thin gloves that can be reused a bit but they're much thinner than the leather gloves and, and they give sweaty. you more <laughs> yeah they can make you sweaty for sure but these have a hard time stinging through it mm-hmm. so they can sting through it but it's much harder for them and so that's a good between point. Um, And then, you know, you do have to know that you're okay getting stung. So, you know, getting, I think the first day that I did that, it had like six to 10 stings on my hands and they began to swell a bit. (laughs) And so I hadn't, I hadn't um, had that experience really, but really my body, you know, adapted quite quickly to that. Mm-hmm. And now I get stung all the time um, on a daily basis, at least 10 times, usually or somewhere between zero and 10 times. And I don't have any issue with it. So it, it really depends on your own body and what you feel comfortable with. Yeah. And definitely don't go too far and make sure you have an EpiPen and all that oh, and totally. know that you have someone nearby. Yeah. But yeah, that's a good in-between spot. And then just um, take it slowly. So, you know, using a veil that, um, you know, okay, I guess I, I guess another piece is have nice queens <laughs> and nice bees. Yeah. And so, yeah, make sure you're selecting for gentleness and um, not having tolerance ultimately for really aggressive colonies because they ultimately put you and other people at risk. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So just requeening with um, gentle stock. And that makes a massive difference with how you feel comfortable and at ease working with bees. And if, if you're agitated because you're getting stung and they're, then they're agitated, it really is this feedback loop. Yeah. So yeah. that can be hard. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, let's let's move forward in your story now because we yeah. were on the topic of raising gentle queens, and yeah. um, let's talk about where you're at today with your beekeeping career. Yeah, thanks. Um, so yeah, just from the inspection services, I got exposed to queen rearing. I was inspecting all the queen companies, uh, all their shipments that sent off the island um, and the big island. Yeah, I've met so many beekeepers that do queen breeding that got like their roots are in Hawaii where then that's where yeah. they learned how to do it. So that's it's pretty like, amazing. So cool. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's not really well known, um, but the big Island is the largest producer of Queens in the world. And we send off over half a million Queens from the Island every year. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> and that's primarily from about four companies. Um, so it's not even a huge amount of companies. There's, at the time I was there, there were about 13 breeders total. And so we would inspect those colonies and I got exposed um, to, of course, disease identification in a huge way, but um, mostly just how those queen ring operations work a bit more and the skill set needed there. And I got exposed to instrumental insemination um, and got to get trained in that, which was really um, lucky. It, in retrospect, it was a lucky find and um, exposure. And, and then from there, I joined a breeding program um, with a honey company um, called Hawaii Island Honey Company. And um, we were breeding VSH queens. So that's Varroa sensitive hygiene. And it was a breeding project that had already been its, in about its fifth year. It was a joint project with USDA, um, PAM, mm -hmm. Arista Bee Research out of Holland, and this honey company I was working for. And so it's a branch of that honey company. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it sort of shows the the breadth of what's at stake when it comes to, you know, finding genetic resistance to Varroa. Yes, it does. And it shows how important that endeavor is. And um, it was, of course, funded by these these pieces that I mentioned, um, these other nonprofits, essentially, and government organizations, and um, also supported by this commercial endeavor. So that whole idea was to try to get a commercial viewpoint of this genetic stock and essentially progress it further into um, being commercially viable. Mm -hmm. And so that was the exciting part because yeah. of course- Yeah, I mean, how did that feel to be really sort of like on, <laughs> on the front lines of that work? It was exciting. I mean, it's really exciting. I believe in it. I really, really believe in it. And, you know, there's a lot of opinions about VSH, but I think really getting to work with the stock and seeing the improvements and seeing the changes was really exciting. So, and, and also having it being supported by data. Mm -hmm. um, I think that when you've got um, tons of information that you're collecting and you're able to analyze that, it just adds so much strength to a breeding program like that. And so that was a huge learning experience. I got to finesse my skills with insemination because um, we did two insemination sessions per month. Wow. <laughs> so we were doing really frequent uh, inseminations. Yeah. I would imagine just how delicate that must be. And you must be <laughs> holding your breath the whole time. <laughs> It's a little bit of a meditation practice, a little bit. Yeah, it's, um, I think it's really truly like any skill, though, and it can be learned. Um, and it isn't that complicated. Um, I might be bold in saying that because it seems complicated. And truly, it is at the heart. But I think, again, it's sort of something if you put your mind to it, and you learn the skill set, it's, it can be, can be developed. 
Yeah. Let's t- just dive into that subject just for a couple of minutes because I'm curious and I I think maybe some of my listeners might be curious as well. Why choose insemination over naturally mated queens? Well, the short answer to that is that ultimately you're trying to be more aware of the um, two sides of the reproduction. So the, both the mother line and the drone line. And when a queen goes out to mate naturally, she mates with drones in midair, 20 to 40 drones, of course, during her, her virgin flight. And you don't get to control who those drones are. And so when you're trying to select for really specific traits like VSH, um, you actually need to be able to control that mating more selectively. So essentially you're, you're selecting drone lines and you're selecting mother lines, and then you're harvesting drone semen and, um, and, and inserting that into the queen. But those queens um, remain somewhat of a science project, to be totally honest, because they're really intended to be the mothers mm-hmm. for future open-mated queens. We know as beekeepers that open-mated is the strongest um, that bees are, they they have an amazing reproduction um, capacity in that and it creates the strongest stock. But, and we wanna continue that, but ultimately that mother line can help dictate further inherited traits. And so um, the goal is not to have all inseminated queens, it's really just to have those bee mothers that you're then grafting from for future stock. Yeah, yeah. wonderful. That makes absolute sense. There's a a couple of local beekeepers that have been working for many, many, many years to try and breed a, a Portland queen bee. Um, oh, okay. And yeah, with that microclimate. It, and it's and it's hard to do because of the the drone population here. Yeah, it is. It <laughs> a lot is. of bees are brought in from from California, or they buy packages that come from the East Coast, and so it's a mishmash. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, it's so true. Yep. And especially in an area where you um, don't have isolated mating, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, which is most places in the world in in truth, but, you know, as more beekeepers come into a certain area, you have less and less control of um, those genetic diversity there. And yeah, ultimately, we do want genetic diversity. That's the real goal. Um, But we also want to be able to help bees um, adapt and evolve to this pest. faster than they normally would in in Mm -hmm. normal evolution. So we're just trying to aid in that process um, so they can develop natural defense mechanisms for it. So that's just led me then, um, as I was in that program, um, I was able to uh, see that there was actually a job open in New Zealand. Uh, Someone encouraged me, uh, my friend Megan encouraged me to apply for the role. And so I got a job with Convita in New Zealand just before COVID, I moved. Oh my goodness, wow. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty wild. I um, came to the far north of the North Island. So I was in a really isolated area um, and I was there for two seasons. And I've since moved to Auckland to take a role that's um, more in an education position. So now I run um, a place called the Comvita Wellness Lab, which is intended for um, reaching customers and teaching them about bees ultimately and honey and the importance of Manuka. Um, and so it's through the lens of a beekeeper. And, That's so um, exciting. Yeah. yeah, I think that it's actually um, a really important direction that we're heading um, to try to also connect with other 
um, bee companies in the area um, and in the whole country, and also um, charities that are doing work within the realm of sustainability um, and regenerative agriculture. And so I feel excited to get to um, have the perspective of the commercial. So I did four seasons commercially, and then of course inspection work and taking that into um, a, a large bee operation um, in a different realm of it, because I think that often there's not that perspective of in the industry, of in the field mm -hmm. um, to take it into um, the customer realm, you know, um, and beyond that, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about Manuka honey. Um, most people have heard of it and they know that, you know, it, it costs more than a regular jar of honey. But why? Like, what is it that makes Manuka honey so very special? So um, one of the first things is that it only comes from New Zealand. So it's um, the Manuka plant is really beloved and iconic tree here. It's part of our bush, which is kind of the um, understory of our native forests. And it's native to New Zealand. Um, and it only blooms for about four to six weeks of the year. So that's one thing that makes it a fairly scarce honey resource. Um, and at Convita, we um, have the connection from tree to hive to jar. So we manage um, planted Manuka forests and also help manage uh, existing naturally uh, occurring Manuka forests um, so that they can perpetuate and um, regenerate. And, and then of course we have our own apiaries. So we have about six apiary branches. Um, and so we are across the whole North Island. We have 25,000 colonies, <laughs> a huge <laughs> quantity. Um, yeah, and, and then we can trace a jar of honey all the way back to its hive site and um, basically who harvested it and the time of year and all that. So and that's so incredible, especially now as more people are becoming aware of adulterated honey on the market. People that are in the supermarkets, they... I think are starting to want to really know that the honey that they're buying is real. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so Manuka honey in particular is special because um, it's been really extensively studied over the last few decades um, since its discovery, ultimately, um, to understand exactly how it's health giving, because there was some evidence that it had some antibacterial properties to it. And so that was then just studied further and further, um, pioneered uh, by Peter Mullen, um, who was researching in New Zealand. And um, he really... Uh, broke through some incredible facts about Manuka and the basically the presence of key compounds in the honey um, and the whole compound profile of the honey to show that it actually has amazing um, health support and health benefits um, in in the realm of um, fighting bacteria, especially. Yeah, so so that was um, that's part of what ma makes Manuka so special. If you've never harvested honey before, or if you're trying to go for like a specific kind of honey, you know, from a, a bloom in your area, timing is everything. And yeah. you're susceptible to the elements. So what are the kinds of things that Convita has seen um, as challenges to, to when the bees are out foraging um, during open bloom? Well, I can say from my experience, um, and I was in a queen unit, of course, rearing queens, but um, we were supporting all the honey units by sending queens to those units. And of course, we did have some honey produced on our site as well. But my 
um, perspective on that is that climate change has been really challenging in essentially making springs earlier um, and mm-hmm. uh, making them potentially more um, unstable with weather. So we have these big rain and drought events that occur over spring and summer. And that of course affects the bloom. Um, what I experienced in the first um, season I was up there was actually that the bloom happened really early in spring, but it was too cold for the bees to access the flower. And oh. so they were not going to harvest it. And so it was this really heartbreak of these huge blooms um, but really no po- possibility of harvesting because it was just too early, too cold. Um, and so, of course, that's one challenge. And, of course, um, like I said, unsettled weather, so big rain can mm-hmm. be really hard on the blooms. It knocks them off and um, ruins that potential crop. Um, and so uh, for Manuka, it's only blooming about two to six weeks of the year, so it's, um, again, something that makes it quite special. And uh, we want to make sure we have the hives perfectly ready for the bloom. And so um, we are harvesting uh, Manuka basically across the whole North Island of New Zealand. And of course, within that, there's many, many microclimates and there's many times and windows where Manuka is blooming. And so ensuring that your hives are ready and able to be transported to that area. Um, We are we do transport our colonies into these sites, these big forested sites for big um, harvested areas. And we are aiming um, with our forests to create more food sources for the bees um, in an understory crop um, so that in the future, we don't have to move the bees, that they can be stationary there and they mm-hmm. can be fed throughout the entire year. Oh, that's so that's beautiful. important consideration yeah yeah and some of these hives are actually flown in with helicopters um <laughs> pretty amazing that's so wild yeah, it's really it's so wild and it's not really heard about in other places because it's generally not a high enough value crop to warrant that type of uh action but here in new zealand of course monica is so valuable and so we are able to um <laughs> to to go to kind of great lengths to get this crop and so we're not the only company that does that (laughs) yeah there's there's a number of others that do as well it just shows what a precious precious resource it is yeah absolutely yeah wow (laughs) well that's so amazing and let's talk about propolis a little bit because that's also a product from the hive that you know as a backyard beekeeper i can harvest it and it has some medicinal benefits what are some of your favorite uh things about propolis well, um, I particularly love it as a aid in throat support. So um, we have a spray that is made from a tincture, essentially, and we also make toothpastes with it. Um, and I really genuinely like those products, um, completely apart from the fact that I work for Convita. <laughs> so uh, I truly, I truly do use them regularly. Um, and I had kind of chronic uh, strep throat (laughs) that would occur year after year. Um, I've had it maybe six or seven times in the last few years. And if you've ever had strep, it's just so awful. And so I've been trying to really up my game on throat support um, and really accessing tools to react quickly to it if I ever feel any kind of beginning of that infection. Mm -hmm. And it's been really helpful in that. So it's just, again, um, an antibacterial and um, antifungal. So it's, it's fighting that 
and the beginnings of those bacteria infections in your throat. Yeah, yeah, in a much a much gentler way than just going full amoxicillin. <laughs> yes, yeah, and that's uh, man, I've I've dealt with the under you know basically the the fallout of that of lots of antibacterial uh, anti um, bacterial uh, antibiotic, pardon me, um, medications. And so I yeah. just want to avoid that if I can. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so that's been good. I, that's my main use for it. I think it's an amazing product. Um, I've always enjoyed harvesting propolis and, you know, using it in different things, um, making salves and tinctures and throat sprays and all that on my own prior to working with Pombita. I would I like love a, a candle. Uh, scented mm. as, as propolis. Yes. So just my, my home can smell like that. <laughs> of course, then all amazing. the bees would show it's up in, in the house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a really cool scent. I know that amazing resin and seeing all the colors that can be, um, especially working in, you know, Hawaii and having a specific realm in our little apiary that we had and um, the different areas I would go working as an inspector, the different colors I would see and now coming here. It's oh, really tell fascinating. Tell me more about that. Well, I, I, we would have, you know, huge range of colors from very light yellow to, and kind of powdery and chalky in texture almost. And then oh, wow. uh, it would be sometimes quite red and sticky. Um, I've even seen bees bring in bubble gum that was blue. So they don't exclusively <laughs> bring in plant resin. <laughs> they, they will also harvest some things that have a similar texture. Sometimes they've been known to sometimes harvest tar off of the road and you can tell when that come and brought in the hive generally they won't i think they have a lot better decision making uh, in general in that realm but (laughs) but i would say um it is amazing what you see and so i've just appreciated the diversity of getting to be in different hives and i guess coming back to your first question of kind of what advice would you give to someone beginning um is, is just get exposed to lots of different apiaries and hives. And you learn so much by just getting into um, all the different types of situations and learning to problem solve and observe what's going on there. Yeah. How many hives do you think you've, you've put your hands in oh. over the years? <laughs> yeah. I wonder... I have no idea. <laughs> a huge amount. I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a huge, huge amount. Um, yeah, working commercially, of course, you uh, you work in large numbers, and um, we had we've we had about um, fifteen hundred hives at the breeding unit in the far north that I worked at here in New Zealand, and then six thousand colonies um, in Hawaii. So there's a lot. Yeah. It, and of course, you're going through them at a rotation of every three weeks, you know, and uh, probably on like a little bit of a time crunch. Yeah. Yeah. And and rearing queens, of course, you're in them frequently with um, picking out the queens and sending them away, um, you know, <laughs> doing definitely cell rearing and just, yeah, you're, you're interacting with these yeah. A lot. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned that you had learned early on um, both Langstroth and Top Bar beekeeping. Which is your yeah. favorite? Oh, I'd say I'd say I really appreciate 
um, top bar for what it is and how amazing it is to see how bees really build all of that, all of the comb completely on their own and they make that shape on their own. But I think that ultimately I've come to, to feel quite strongly that Langstroth is very practical mm-hmm. and very, um, it's user-friendly. So as beekeepers, um, I've just seen quite a bit that top bar can cause a lot of questions and issues with new beekeepers. And so I generally recommend Langstroth for new beekeepers. Yeah, um, less, yeah. less, um, less challenges, I think. Yeah. Um, and so much of the literature that's out there for, you know, learning the ropes of beekeeping is rooted in Langstroth. Yeah, and it was really, really consciously designed. So Langstroth really observed the bees and thought about the bee space. And he made those boxes um, with a really specific um, design there. So I try to think back to that and how um, elegant it is actually. Um, yeah, and it, it, it's very useful. But I used um, top bar hives that were four feet long. So kind of an African style uh-huh. um, top bar. And I really enjoyed using those. So, you know, it's... It's just a different experience. They have yeah. different purposes. Really. I think of top bar beekeeping as like weekend beekeeping because it's so yeah. cash. It's like no heavy lifting. You can wear your shorts and like yeah. your, your yeah. veil and, and your bees are just, I don't know. It's just more relaxing to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's true. It can be. Absolutely. Although I've seen beekeepers build their own boxes to like a little bit wrong specs and then you've got a lot of challenges uh-huh. <laughs> and you've got a lot of cross combing and things that don't feel very relaxing. So yeah. Um, yeah. It depends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Aww. But amazing. Yeah. Well, are there mm-hmm. any, any special memories that like through your beekeeping career, and your time beekeeping privately, are there any things that really stand out to you or moments that you hold close to your heart? Yeah, so many. I feel really lucky to have gotten to travel a lot with bees. Um, when I was an apiary inspector, we were based on the big island, but we worked on all the Hawaiian islands. And so I traveled every few weeks um, to all the islands. And I, growing up in Hawaii, hadn't really gotten to see the other islands. Um, I had pretty much just been on the big island. And so it was a real gift to get to see my home state more um, and do that through work and through um, being outside and interacting with beekeepers and getting to know bees on all the islands. Um, We have Varroa only on the big island in Oahu. And so um, Varroa has not reached those other islands yet and getting to see bees um, through the lens of no Varroa was amazing Mm. um, and see the effects of Varroa um, in Big Island and Oahu and how that's changed them. Um, and so one of the things that stands out as you ask that is getting to go to Molokai um, and going to see the north part of Molokai, which is Kalaupapa. And it's a really isolated part of the island. It's um, The island itself is only about 7,000 people that live on it. It's not considered very um, tourist-based. Um, and so it's really just residents that live there. And it's a beautiful, beautiful place. Um, and... Kalopapa is an old leper colony. And so it was where um, lepers were actually exiled. It's this amazing part of peninsula that's got 3000 foot cliff faces and a huge ocean surrounding it. So there was, it's really, really isolated. And I was brought down there with um, 
the National Park Service and they have some presence down there and some biologists and they have beehives forming, you know, and so they needed some guidance and we were really lucky to go um, do some sampling down there. Um, I've got to visit a few times and that was really a gift because you do actually have to be invited to go there. So, um, oh, wow. There, so we got to stay down there and it, it's an amazing, amazing place. So that was a, a highlight for sure. But there's other points, other, a lot of other ideas I have in my head. I could go on for a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, here at Beekeeper Confidential, we also love very good blooper stories of beekeeping uh-huh. mishaps that are embarrassing, but in retrospect, funny <laughs> do you have any of those yeah. that you'd <laughs> like to share <laughs> uh, yeah I have a couple one is quite unfortunate I was um, doing a hive inspection uh, marking so we'd often mark beekeepers queens for them uh, during the hive inspection because often they were beginning beekeepers they needed some guidance on how to mark a queen um, they often didn't see their queen and didn't know necessarily if it was present mm-hmm. so I was marking a queen and uh, the the paint pen ran all over her, and it was very tragic. Oh. It was and it was right in front of the beekeeper. It was terrible. So that was a, I've learned a lot from. Oh my goodness! I also um, think though, like if 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 you're working with new beekeepers and they see you mess up, it's uh, mm-hmm. it's like even even the pros make mistakes sometimes. Oh, totally! And in beekeeping, Absolutely. there's just always mistakes. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there's been a lot of loopers. Um, another one I think of is, um, I'm not sure how I could have exactly avoided it, but I was on Molokai in a different part of Molokai um, doing con- some consultation with an apiary site on the far uh, eastern side of the island. And it's also a really isolated area. And they have um, primarily German black bees there because those are the first bees that were brought to the state. Mm. And since there's no varroa, they're not able to get queens from the other islands. Um, and so they've really just got this pretty feisty genetics. Um, and so I, I had gotten stung um, about 50 times in a day. And that oh. was during this one day that I was doing inspection work for them. And I reached my capacity. <laughs> um, so I had learned, I learned a lot in that instance as well, you know, uh-huh. just to know where that line is. You really have to listen to your body and to pay attention because you can get to a dangerous point, even if you seem to have an endless amount of um, resistance, <laughs> you know, it, yeah, it, yeah. it accumulates and it, I felt exhausted, so exhausted and swollen. oh (laughs) yeah yeah so there's been some odd bloopers there of course I've done the thing that every beekeeper has done at least once leave frames out of the honey box and then you've got tons of comb which is quite fun but also really annoying (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. one time I had done a cutout and I had this bucket of comb that was like too yucky to harvest and too broken up to like put in a frame and put in the hive and so Mm. I thought well I'll just put it in my backyard in a little tray and (laughs) and my bees can just go and get it if they want it and so I did that in the morning and I left and when I came back this afternoon the cloud of bees over my backyard I could see it like over my house and I just realized oh Oh, my god God, what have I done (laughs) yeah oh no and you're in an urban area oh yeah (laughs) It looked like a full-on swarm because there were just so many bees. So, 
Um, I haven't done that ever again. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Oh my gosh. Yeah. You yeah. learn so much yeah. just by, I, honestly, it's a lot of it's trial and error. You learn how to problem solve and figure out how to do things. And it's really through the lens of the bee biology, isn't it? We, we understand so much through, um, the bees as organisms and also making mistakes yes. <laughs> we're human oh well is there anything else that you would like to share for your your feature on the show you're so mm. interesting and you have such oh, wonderful you. stories and oh, um you're thanks. i would just love to keep chatting for hours <laughs> oh thanks well i i can't think of anything at the top of my head um but yeah, I just feel really grateful to work with bees and the ways that they lead me through different parts of my life and um, getting to be outside, getting to be really at the intersection of agriculture and science and art. And there's all these intersections of the work that we do and um and really getting to educate people on the fascinating tiny magic that they are you know it's um I think we're all really naturally drawn to bees um and people are fascinated by them and and it's without even knowing a lot of the background of what they really do and then you uncover the way that a queen is made and the way that a queen mates and um the, the secreting wax out of their abdomen you know all these amazing things yeah. that just seem science fiction and um it just creates that love and advocacy for them further so i think it's just worthwhile to share um, oh i love that so people. much yes you're sort of you're helping to unshroud the mysteries yeah that, that yeah these exactly <laughs> yeah and it ultimately creates more respect for those organisms um and the, the networks that they exist in you know these these really complicated networks and ecosystems that we have to protect so um yeah keep oh. sharing your magic with about the bees i think it's awesome that you're doing this podcast oh, beekeepers are crazy you. and fascinating aren't they <laughs> often really oddballs so yeah we are, I, absolutely yeah. and it's like why bees <laughs> why did you choose bees and like so many beekeepers that i talk to they get into bees but then they're catapulted into like a totally different life path because of the bees <laughs> and it's just you know that's pretty amazing <laughs> yeah it's, it is amazing it is absolutely thank you so much this was such a treat for my afternoon today and i i think oh, our listeners are gonna you. love you too thank you my <laughs> pleasure i appreciate the interview yeah absolutely yeah. to learn more about noelani visit comvita.com you just might recognize a few faces on their Meet the Beekeeper Behind the Bee Rescue series. As always, I'll be sharing links to find Noelani and Comvita at beekeeperconfidential.com. Until next time, may the buzz be with you. Beekeeper Confidential is written and produced by Mandy Shaw.